But I'm going to take a break from Philippians today and uh, share a message with you from one of the Gospels. <clears throat> from one of the Gospels. And it, it's one of those um, examine, examine your life messages to know if you are really saved. So an evangelistic message, which might seem strange for some to preach an evangelistic message to the church, but the reality is, is that, like probably every church, not everyone in here actually is following the Lord Jesus Christ. They may say they believe in him, they may talk about him, they may know a lot of stuff concerning Jesus, but they're really not born again. They're really not saved. And so it's good to, and we know that to be the case because Jesus tells us that the church will be until he comes and, and sorts it out. It'll be filled with wheat and tare, wheat, wheat and tares, those who are saved and those who are unsaved. And so there are folks here uh, that I would imagine are, are not saved. So, that's what this message is really about today. Uh, recent, uh, any of you guys use Google Maps? Or Apple Maps, one of them, right? Google Maps, I think, kind of, uh, you know, we don't use map books anymore. Remember those, Bill? Those Thomas guides? They were awesome. Yeah, you still have one? Love those things. They're so reliable. They're fixed, you know? So they give you updates all the time. But I don't, most people don't use those anymore. They use some type of... Google Map, Apple Map, but there was a recent Google Map story, maybe you saw it, there was a number of drivers uh, trying to get to the Denver International Airport and trusting Google Maps, which was their first mistake, uh, trusting that Google Maps could get them there without having to endure all the traffic uh, that they were facing at that time on the road that they were on, they, they took a different road. They allowed Google to take them off that road and put them on another one. And uh, it recommended a road that basically, um, it was a road for a while, a paved road, and then it turned into a dirt road. But you know, Google was telling them where to go, and they just trusted Google. Anyway, it left around 100 cars stuck in the mud, in a big mud field. And it's funny, because I read, and, and just as you read the story, it was kind of amusing, because one of the drivers commented as they were going down the road, they realized things, they started to feel like maybe things aren't right, but they saw everyone else doing it, so they just followed on. And then they all ended up in the mud, stuck, and couldn't, couldn't get out. And it's funny because the, the article said the bottom line is, uh, don't just follow GPS apps blindly. And yet that's exactly what they did. There's another road that people uh, follow blindly. And they trust that, um, you know, they see everyone else doing it, so they just follow them. They trust it'll get them to their destination that they hope to arrive to, but it'll never get them there. It'll never get them there. So I have a question for you all. I have a question for you all, every single one of you. Are you on the, the right road, the good road, and that is on the one that leads to, and for lack of a better word, let me just say heaven right now because that's pretty general, and most people will understand that. Are you on the road, are you on the road that leads to heaven? Well, let me say it this way. Are you on the road that actually leads to everlasting life with your creator? With your creator in the promised and glorious kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, a kingdom that my brother read about this morning in Hebrews that we also sung about? Or, or are you on the road that Jesus says, listen, Jesus says, not Jeremy, many people, not a few, but many people are on, which is a road that won't get you there to the kingdom, but ultimately ends in eternal ruin. It's a road that terminates in a place called 
hell. It's an awful place. It's a horrific place. It's not a place anybody in their right mind would set out to go. Which road are you on, beloved? I cannot think of a more important question for any human being to consider, can you? Please turn, if you would, if you're not already there, to the first book of the New Testament. That is the Gospel of Matthew. And turn a little bit to the right to chapter 7. We will be looking primarily at verses 13 and 14. And this message is a little more serious today, and the younger ones are in here, so I am going to tone it down a little bit. Uh, I don't want to scare them. The Gospel of Matthew majors in the promised kingdom that is repeatedly spoken of in the Old Testament. And Matthew, this gospel, each gospel has its own emphasis, but Matthew makes it clear that the appointed king of the special righteous kingdom that is to come is none other than the crucified, risen, and perfectly righteous Jesus. And through the sacrificial, sin-bearing, substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of King Jesus, he, Jesus, did what no one else could do. And what is that? He, King Jesus, secured the way for unrighteous and unworthy people, sinners, which we are all are, born into the world as sinners, he secured the way for sinners to be made citizens of this wonderful kingdom. And all who are made citizens of this future kingdom will one day live and fellowship with Almighty God and each other forever in a perfect paradise on earth. Are you on the road to that kingdom? Are you? In chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, to the crowds gathered there around Jesus, Jesus speaks of two ways or two roads. One leads to the glorious superior and most blessed life with Christ in his righteous kingdom. And the other one, the other road, the other way, absolutely does not. And Jesus appeals to the listening crowds, to choose the one that leads to life with him forever. And I appeal to you as well this morning, if you are not on that road. Let's read the text together. Jesus says to the crowds, Enter by the narrow gate, 
That's his appeal to all that are there hearing him. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way, or road, it's also translated, is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For, or why, or because, the gate is narrow or small, and the way or road is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You can leave it up for, well, it's just the last verse, but that's okay. Looking back at your Bibles, if you have them open, just notice the contrast. One gate is wide, one gate is narrow, one road is easy, one road is hard. The wide road is crowded. The narrow road has few on it. That's Jesus. But he appeals, enter by the narrow gate. Another translation in ESV, I prefer, I like the ESV's translation, but another one that's maybe more common to you in the wording is found in the New, New American Standard Bible. And it's a good translation as well. And it says there, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad. Broad. That leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow, narrow, that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So instead of the words broad and narrow, the ESV uses the translation or the words easy and hard, which is, in my estimation, what Jesus is attempting to communicate. Uh, the idea of a broad road, if you will, is a road that is easy to travel on. It's not difficult. If you've ever been hiking and you've had to go up some trails that are very narrow, very constrained, when one side is a cliff, <laughs> right? Not so easy to navigate, right? Maybe uh, uh, if it's a narrow road, then if you run into a hole or an obstruction, you can't go around it. You have to go over it. It's a difficult road is the idea, right? For a, a narrow road. But a broad road is much easier for me to navigate, for me to journey on. So I think the ESV has it right when it just translates it, easy road, hard road. The broad road being easy to go down, the narrow road being hard or difficult to go down, okay? But one pastor points out this concerning both roads, and he says this, and I think it's worth noting. Both ways point to the good life, to salvation, to heaven, but only the narrow way or the hard way or the difficult way actually leads to those things, the good life, salvation, heaven, Christ's kingdom. There is nothing here to indicate that the broad way is marked hell. I mean, who, who, would, who would enter into that gate? This way to hell. No. That's not the point. The point is, they both think they're going to arrive at the same destination. But one will not get them there. Just like those poor folks uh, who decided to get out of that traffic, to cut themselves, you know, some time. They didn't make it to the Denver airport. He goes on to say, the point our Lord is making is that it is marked heaven but does not lead there 
That is the great lie of all the false religions, all the false ways, all the other ways outside of the way, might I say the person, who can get you there and grant you access to his kingdom and make you suitable for it, since it is a righteous kingdom. In describing the way or the road that leads to life in the coming kingdom as narrow or hard, what Jesus is doing is indicating what life's journey is like for those, for those who are genuine, emphasis on genuine, genuine followers of Jesus while on this earth. What it is like, beloved, for the true, authentic, real, bonafide Christian, the one who's actually saved. The one who's actually exercised saving faith. The one who has been born again and been given a new heart. This one. The one who is really following Jesus. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? That this is what life is like for them. That this is what Jesus is indicating. That it is a harder road while on this earth, in this life, in this age, for the Christian. Well, let's look at a few. There are many passages we could look at, but let me give you a, a sampling, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Jesus, I think this shocks some people because they've never read the Bible, or they've never read through it, or not read all of it, or I don't know, but the way you hear people talk about Jesus uh, often does not line up with what he actually says about himself and about his mission. I, just, I think they might just be ignorant. They just don't know. Or worse, they're lying. But consider these words of Jesus. This is Jesus, Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I mean, you could just right there, sit right there. He will bring peace at his second coming. In order to do that, he's going to put down every rebel, crush them. But in his first coming, he did not come to bring peace on the earth. Peace between man and God, through him, yes. But not peace on the earth. In fact, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus? Did you say that? He did. Now look at his application of this. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves, did you hear that? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now that just pushes hard against something I've heard a lot of times, which is family is the most important thing in life. And while family is an important thing in life, because God created the family, it's beautiful, it can be wonderful, it is not the most important thing. The most important thing is Jesus Christ and following after him. And in doing that, for some, it will mean that they will lose their own family or parts of it or find that within their own household they have enemies now. One writer says concerning this text, he says this, Jesus said he had come at this time not to bring peace to the earth, but a sword. Not a literal sword, but a sword is a weapon which divides and severs, severs relationships. Divides, cuts. As a result of his visit to the earth, some children would be set against parents, and a man's enemies might be those within his own household. This is because many who choose to follow Christ are hated by their family members. This may be part of the cost of discipleship. 
For love of family should not be greater than love for the Lord. A true disciple must take up his cross and follow Jesus, as we read further on in Matthew. He must be willing to face not only family hatred, but also death, like a criminal carrying his cross to his own execution. This hard way for those who are followers, truly, of Christ, is spoken of again and again and again and again in the Scriptures. Luke 6.22, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. And here, this is very important that you catch this last phrase. On account of the Son of Man, on account of me, because of your loyalties to me, because you are following after me. Blessed are you when people hate you because of me, when they diss you because of me, when they make you an outsider because of me, when they isolate you because of me, when they speak evil of you. And he says that because that happens. For those who are true followers of him. It's just, it's just a, a reality, at least at the present time in this age. I think, you, I think we want to have a good name and the reputation or a good reputation among the public. I mean, that's, that would be a good sign that you're living a, a, a generally a good life, but the reality is if everyone under the sun is speaking well of you, if everyone speaks well of you, if everyone says, that's the best guy ever, everyone, that could be an indication that there's a problem according to the word of God. In fact, Jesus says that. I won't, it won't pop up, but you can write it down. Just a few verses later, after 622 and verse 26, he says, woe to you, woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. The false prophets, beloved, told the people what they wanted to hear. They went along with them and, and instead of giving them the truth, fed their ears with lies that would be pleasing to them. And so they never challenged them. They never, they never pushed back with the truth of God's word. They claimed to speak for God, but they spoke a message that rebellious sinners could swallow. And so... They were adored. They were thought well of. Because if they had, would have spoken the truth, we can see that through the Old Testament. Got to bring it down a notch. I feel myself getting riled up. We can see that those who spoke the truth, true prophets, what happened to them? Especially when they had to tell the, the rebels to repent. What happened to them? Hated, persecuted, killed, spit on, beaten up. Because that is the reality for those who represent God in this world that is fallen and broken and living in rebellion against God. It is the harder way. John 15. Again, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. And Jesus says, if you were of the world, speaking to Christians, if you were, or maybe better said, if you were still of the world, because you once were, but if you were still of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, despises you. Beloved, again, it's not like every single person is at the same level of hate and despising for you who is not a true believer or follower of God. There's varying levels. Some are nice haters. They're kind in some ways, right? But and some are some are more committed to their rebellion and, and more focused and and that shows up in 
the way they treat you, the way they act towards you. That is, you who are truly followers of Christ. I mean, if you're not a follower of Christ, then, well, then you're of the world. And then the world will love you because you're just like them. And why does the fallen world despise the real Jesus? Why does the fallen world despise the real Jesus and those who, tru those who truly follow him, those that are his, who represent him, who make him known, who are loyal to him and his way and his commands? Why? Well, we don't, we don't have to wonder because Jesus tells us, John 7, 7, the world, he says, hates me. Jesus says this, because I testify that what it does is evil. And if we are following after him, then we too, in one way or another, will testify that what it does is evil, and the world does not want to be told that what it does is evil or be exposed for its unrighteousness. One writer says, the world hated Jesus because he is not of it. He had come into it as light and pointed out its sin and rebellion against the Father. The world has its religions. The world has its programs. The world has its plans. The world has its values, beloved. But Christ witnessed that it is all evil. It is all evil because all of it, in one way or another, turns people away from their Savior, from their Creator, it encourages them in their rebellion. It enables them. It celebrates sin in one way or another. That's why John says in 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. John MacArthur, commenting on Matthew 7, 13 and 14, says, the person who says yes to Christ, the person who says yes to Christ, the person who bows to Christ and gives their life to him and receives eternal life in him, the person who says yes to Christ must, must, if they've truly given themselves to him, if they're truly following after him, must say no to the things of the world. That's not debatable. Because to be in Christ is to be willing to forsake our own way for his. That's what it means to be a Christian. A true one, biblically speaking. I forsake my way for his way. I die and live for him. It is no longer me, it is him. I know I am a sinful person. I know he is perfectly righteous. I follow after him. No to me, yes to him. And therefore, no to this world and its sinful, broken, rebellious ways. And of course, in doing that, Christian, it can cost persecution, ridicule, and tribulation of all kinds and degrees and sorts. Because you'll have to say no if you are a follower of Christ. Now, beloved, that doesn't mean we always do that perfectly. Christians do fail. True, bona fide Christians fail to say no to the world. But it is not their status. In other words, they don't just continue to say yes to the world and nothing to Christ. They don't... They don't live their life that way. They may fail, yes, and there is forgiveness in Christ, and there is grace to get back up and get back on course. But the true Christian does not live like the world does with no regard to Christ and only regard to themselves and their sinful ways and their rebellious hearts. There is confusion in the church today. 
person who says yes to Christ must say no to the things of the world. If that doesn't characterize you, someone who is repeatedly saying no to the things of the world, not just to say no, but because you must say yes to Christ, and that will necessarily require you to say no to a world that's living in rebellion to Christ, if that's not you, you're on the wrong road. We'll get to that in a second. I'll read these two verses next. 1 Peter 4.12, maybe you remember this when we went through 1 Peter, but again we see this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed in his kingdom. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's an evidence of that. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, as a meddler. In other words, the, the difficulty of your life shouldn't be because you're sinning. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, living for Christ, following him, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. If anyone suffers as a Christian, and they do, as they live for Christ, and they will in this life, which makes it the harder road. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted in one way or another because the world hates godliness because they hate God. <laughs> On top of that, listen, one writer adds this, when we identify ourselves with Jesus Christ, we declare war on the devil, and he declares war on us. The one whom we formerly served now becomes our great enemy. When you enter through that narrow gate onto that hard road, when you make Christ your Lord and Savior, when you call upon him to save you and you place your allegiance with him and your loyalty, you give it to him and you bow to him, the enemy of him makes you his enemy, Satan. And, of course, that brings with it its own difficulties. I don't know how much of a Christian's difficult difficulties are, can be attributed to Satan, I can't see behind the scenes, but I know a degree of them are. Satan's good with those. Listen, he's good with all the others. He's good with them. As long as to one way or another, even if, they, even if they're religious, especially if they're religious, that's even better. As long as they aren't true followers of Christ, he's good with it because they're still living in rebellion. Do you think he works hard on them? No, just uses them, but he doesn't come against them. In fact, he'll do whatever he can to make it more advantageous for them to remain as they are. Contrary to the, to the narrow or hard road, the road that is broad or easy describes what life is like for those who may wrongly think they are on the road to heaven or, or, some, or some type of happy ever afterlife, okay? Maybe they don't use the term heaven, but talking to people, they think they're on the road to some type of eternal bliss. They may call it heaven. They may call it something else. But they wrongly think that. And beloved, as, I, as I'm trying to help you understand, some of the many on the easy road will even say they believe in Jesus. But because they are not truly saved, they are either insincere or they have embraced a false Jesus, which exists in great number, one who is really not Jesus, and therefore 
doesn't require the things that the real Jesus does. Because of that, they do not truly live for and follow the Lord. These many on this road, even though they may profess Jesus. But they don't know him. They don't know him. He doesn't know them, not in a relational way. And so they don't live for and follow the Lord, but instead, beloved, they live for and follow this present world. And as a result, they are loved by the world, and consequently, they do not suffer the things a true Christian may suffer. They do not suffer as a Christian. They fit right in with the world. Is that you? Do you fit right in? If you do, you're not on the road that goes to heaven. You're on the road that goes to hell if you fit right in with the world. Again, I'm not talking about a Christian who who stumbles, maybe even struggles, fights, is fighting right now maybe with their sin and fighting against it because of their loyalties to Christ. I'm talking about someone who maybe names Christ, but that's about it. That's as far as it goes. It has no, Christ has no other influence on their life outside of his name on their lips. He's not in their heart. He doesn't own them because they have not yet truly bowed and given themselves to him. Yet they name him. One writer says, the way that is broad is the easy, broad, the broad road that leads to destruction. The crowded road, beloved. That should be, so, that should be sobering. The crowded road. The way that is broad is the easy, inclusive, indulgent, permissive, and self-oriented way of the world. On this road, there are few rules, few restrictions, and few requirements. Sin is tolerated. In fact, I would say sin is called good. On this road, that's how far we go. Let's not just tolerate it. Let's remove any any bothering in our conscience about our lifestyle or what we do. So let's call what God calls sin, let's call it good on this road. And let's even try to, try to make it a religious thing. Let's even say Jesus called it good. Sin is, on this road, tolerated and truth is moderated. Oh boy, you better believe it. It's watered down. Until basically there's nothing left of truth, biblical truth, the revelation of God. It's pushed back, it's excluded, it's twisted, it's corrupted to the degree that there's nothing left of it. This way, the broad way, requires no spiritual maturity, no moral character, no commitment, and no sacrifice. Is that the road you're on? I don't know, I'm asking, because I want you to ask yourself. He says, it is the easy of way of floating, it is the easy way of floating downstream. This broad, easy road. Downstream, and then he quotes Ephesians 2.2, in the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The entrance or the gate to this broad, easy road is wide, beloved. It is wide. You know what it is? It is accommodating to rebellious sinners. They don't have to give up anything. They can come in, there's plenty of room to get through the gate with all of their baggage. And by that I mean worldly baggage, worldly thinking, unrepentant hearts. 
Every belief under the sun other than the true one is welcome, including a phony Jesus. He's welcome too. Come on in with your phony Jesus. A phony Jesus is, I could say many things about that kind of Jesus, but it is a Jesus that asks nothing of you. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. A phony Jesus asks nothing of you, expects nothing of you, places no demands on you, stays out of your business, but is, of course, there to help you when you feel like you need some help, you know, with your job or something, I guess, or your flat tire. And of course, of course, this phony Jesus, he'll stay out of your business, but when it comes to you dying, he'll make sure you get a immediate access to the afterlife, the good life, heaven, his kingdom, right? Then he'll step in. Meanwhile, do what you want. That's a phony Jesus. That's a false Christ. I was mentioning earlier about the devil and how when you become a follower of Christ, you become an enemy of the devil. The, the one that you formerly served now becomes your great enemy. Okay? And for those on the, the broad road, the, the easy road, the devil is, is not pushing back against them. He's good with them. He likes them. He uses them to serve him. And I think you even see this, and, you, and, and we can see this reality, this, this easier life, because in one way, it does produce an easier life. Often, in fact, you, you see the psalmist wrestling with this. You see writers in Scripture wrestling with this. They look around the world and they say, why do the wicked prosper. Here I am following Christ, struggling, sacrificing, being persecuted in one way or another, facing tribulations, and I look out and I see those who are rejecting Christ, the true Christ, not living for God, living for themselves, doing wicked things, being rebellious, prospering getting richer, getting fatter, eating well, living it up. Let me encourage you, write, write this down, Psalm 73. Just read the entire psalm. It's not, it's not long. Psalm 73. And see as the psalmist wrestles with this. Why, God? Why? Why? Well, they're the devils. And he has means to, to make things even better for them, temporarily speaking, so that they would not have any reason to, to cry out to God. He'll, he'll continue to, quote, bless them if they'll stay on that road. And I'm not saying every rich person is blessed by the devil. Of course not. There are rich Christians too. But read the psalm. And, and what's important about the psalm, what's important about the psalm is seeing this, He's wrestling with it, but then, but then he remembers their end. They may have it good for a while. They may be, be even taken care of by the God of this world, if you will. But in the end, in the next life, they will perish because they are rejecting God along the way. So don't envy them. Don't envy them. Keep your head down. Stay the course on that difficult road, on that hard road. The hard road that leads to life, beloved, is entered into through a narrow gate, a narrow gate, a small gate. One writer points out it is narrow in the sense of having a particular requirement for entrance. 
It doesn't say, come one, come all, whatever you believe, it's fine with me. Bring your baggage with you. It does not say that. It requires saving faith in the biblical Jesus. Not any Jesus, but the biblical Jesus. It requires repentance. It requires you, the sinner, to bow before Christ, turning from your sinful life and calling upon him to save you, to redeem you, and then pledging yourself to him. It is, it is to see him as he really is, which is Lord, which is King Jesus. It's to see yourself as you really are, which is a sinner deserving of death and not the king of your own life. There's only one king. His name is Jesus. One writer says the narrow gate has been compared to a turnstile. You know those turnstiles? Those, oh, those always freak me out. Because you always think, I can, you know, you can't even, I can't even bring my lady with me. can't even, you can't, it's just one person you get in. You can't, you got to leave the luggage outside. If you want to take the luggage, you got to take it around. You get in and boom, and then you're out, right? It's kind of like maybe that. You don't bring anything with you. It's just you before the Lord, crying out to him to save you. It's just you, before the Lord, repenting of your sin and trusting in him. That's entrance onto the road that leads to his kingdom. And it is a difficult road. It is a hard road. Jesus tells us, as I already pointed out, and this is, I said, sobering, that few are on the road to eternal life in Christ. Few. Few. One writer says that believers concerning few, followers of Christ, are not few in number because the gate is too small to accept more. That's not the point. Man, I wish I could have got in there. They don't want to go in there. He says, there's no limit to the number who could go through the gate. That's not Jesus saying, hey, it's too small for a bunch of you to get, get in. That's not what he's saying. It's a comparison, a contrast between the broad gate, the wide gate, the broad road and the wide gate. The writer says, if they go through God's way in repentance for their sins and trust in Jesus Christ to save them, there's, there's room. And nor is the number few because space in the kingdom is limited. Well, I guess he can only let so many in. gate is open for all who will go through it. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man. But its end is the way to death. Two different roads, two different, two different destinations, which road are you on beloved are you on the road that leads to life and that is life with christ in his kingdom are you on that road are you standing with christ are you following after him really struggling yes but truly following after him or does the world love you and do you love the world? If I told them you were a Christian, would they be surprised? If yes is the answer to those questions, why would you think you're on the hard road to life in Christ? Why? You have no biblical reason to think that. Are you on the road that leads to life or the one that leads to destruction? And I'll close with this, beloved. Destruction, the word destruction there. The Greek word means ruin or loss. It's not annihilation, but ruination. 
that Jesus speaks of. As one writer puts it, it's not the complete loss of being, but the complete loss of well-being in a place called hell. That's where that road gets you. I don't know where you are, all of you. I believe I know where some of you are. But you have to examine your own hearts. I don't watch you 24-7. You wouldn't want me doing that anyway. That would be weird. <laughs> but it doesn't matter if I watch you. The Lord knows. He actually knows. And, and I, I hope that you will, if you are on the wrong road, will come to an awareness of that, an awareness that will not let you go. And even fear would rise in your heart. Fear that would lead you running to Christ. Running off that road and entering through the narrow gate, the small gate, the way of Christ. Yeah, it's a harder road, huh? Yeah, for a time. But nothing is harder than eternity in hell. Nothing. I plead. I plead with those of you who are hearing this and are not on the right road. I plead with you as Christ pleaded, enter through the narrow gate. Stop pretending. Stop playing games. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. I thank you for Your truth. I thank you for your spirit who convicts men and women, boys and girls, of your truth, who shows them the trustworthiness of it and helps them to believe it, empowers them to follow after it. Father, I pray for any here who are not yet truly. Christians, not true followers of our Lord and Savior, of the King of Kings, of the only one who can save any sinner. Father, I pray you would do your saving work even now in their hearts. Father, I pray you would open their eyes to the truth of the road that they're on, that it's not going to get them to heaven this broad road, this easy road, this road lived really apart from Christ, not in loyalty to him, but lived in, in love with the world. I pray that they, if they have trusted in a false Jesus, would see that reality and see the real Jesus for all of his glory and splendor and wonder and that their hearts would bow to him for the first time and that they might be saved. I pray all this, Lord, for your glory. In Christ's name.